Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AOC PM&R podcast. I'm student Dr. Ryan Russell, a current third year and co-chair for the AOC PM&R Public Relations Committee. I'll be your host today. Joining us is none other than Dr. William Niehaus. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Niehaus. How are you? You bet. I'm happy to be here. Perfect. So just going to give a quick intro to Dr. Niehaus. He received his undergraduate degree from Xavier University in 2005 went on to graduate from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine in 2011, completed his internship at the Medical College of Wisconsin Affiliated Hospitals Program in 2012, and his residency at the University of Colorado in 2015. Dr. Niehaus specializes in spine diseases and conditions, stroke, traumatic and acquired brain injuries, and inpatient rehab. Does that about kind of cover a little bit of your background? Yep, I would say that I'm a, a neuro rehab um, PM&R doctor that I would say for the most part is focused on the inpatient side of the equation. Okay, perfect. Well, like I said, thank you again for being here today with us. I wanted to start by asking you what led you to pursue physical medicine and rehab and kind of describe your journey into physiatry. Sure. I feel like everyone's got a got a descriptor and of a journey because uh, not many of us come into medical training knowing that this is exactly what we want to do. Um, so I, um, when I went into med school, I thought I was going to become a pediatrician. Um, I was pretty focused on that for a while. And then in the classroom, I realized I really liked the neurology topics. So I did a stroke rotation at one of our big acute care hospitals in Cincinnati, and I found myself continually asking, okay, this person had a stroke, we know where it is, we know what's going on, but how do we get them back home, what's the plan, where is this going to go, and frequently the team uh, would say, oh, we're going to send them off to the rehab unit or the rehab hospital, and they'll take it from here, and that really piqued my interest. So then I completely rearranged my schedule and then did a rotation on a neuro rehab unit in Cincinnati that focused on brain injury and spinal cord injury. And I felt like uh, a lot of things clicked into place. So it had all the neurology things that I ended up really, really liking. And then it had all of the taking care of people, not diseases pieces that I felt like I was kind of missing with the stroke neurology team. Not that they don't take care of people, but I felt like I was getting to work with the whole person and really kind of put them in their context as to what they actually need to get back home. And then um, one of my cousins uh, who was in Cincinnati ended up also being in PM&R and I just didn't realize it, but she was focused on outpatient musculoskeletal stuff and I had rotated with her very early on in med school. And after that rotation, I called her and I couldn't quite put those two pieces together as one discipline. And she really helped, you know, open up my mind that this is a much bigger field than just neuro rehab or just musculoskeletal medicine. Right. And then I became even more interested by it. Awesome. So it sounds like you kind of found your passion for brain and spinal cord injury during that neuro rehab stint. Yep. And then I, I fooled myself a little bit into thinking, oh, I'll just do Pease Rehab. Um, that's one of the reasons I came out here into to Denver, Colorado, because we have a pretty strong Pease Rehab program. 
But then ultimately, when I really reflected on everything, I fell back onto those neurology roots and realized the kids I was really excited working with were the ones that had adult neuro rehab diagnoses and didn't necessarily, I don't know, that it was kids specifically, really those things that really, um, I don't know, called to me and uh, excited me to come in to work the next day. Wonderful. So as far, so it sounds like since you found your, your passion on that type of, uh, that neuro rehab stint, what type of advice would you have for students that may be interested in the neuro rehab uh, areas of PMNR? Um, it really kind of depends on what's available at your home institution. Um, I would advise to get involved in PMNR adjacent fields if the specific neural rehab is not exactly available. Sometimes that involves neurology rotations, neurosurgery, ortho rotations, where you're kind of seeing those support or uh, disciplines that really rhyme with our field and help feed some of the inpatient rehab patients or think about the same kind of patients in a different way. And so I think that's that's the thing that is the most interesting and, and a way to kind of build out that resume if you can't go into a formal one in PMNR. Um, but then again, if those options in PMNR are available and open to you, then go and do those and see what you can do. Um, try to gain as big of a breadth of knowledge as you can. Um, away rotations can be helpful to help really sort that out, especially if some of those things are not available at your home institution. The, that away rotation thing has become a lot more complex with COVID and different recommendations, needs, and requirements for where you are in the country and what exactly is going on at that time um, that you're thinking about it. And so it, it's kind of do what you can where you can with what you got and uh, reach out and see what you can do. Okay. Well, uh, what kind of advice would you have for particularly looking into residencies that are big in neurorehabilitation? Um, in terms of that residency pursuit, um, looking at my own uh, path, I, I still was probably 70 to 80% sure if you asked me as a, a fourth year student heading into residency training that I would have ended up in peds rehab. So things can change. And so I would say it's valuable to think of places that are strong in what you're considering, but also have other options available to you. So there's lots of places, let's say, that are really good in neural rehab, but some of their musculoskeletal options are less ideal, or their cancer rehab is not as optimal as it could be. Or, you know, you can kind of take your pick as to what those other things that might ultimately be that resident thing. And so trying to land a spot that's good in lots of things or broad enough that if you change your mind, which a vast number of medical trainees will, that those other options are open to you also. Don't, don't pigeonhole yourself too much. That's great advice. Okay, I wanna shift a little bit and kind of talk to you about what your daily life is like. 
uh, working in sure. neuro rehab. Um, so could you describe a typical day? Typical day. Um, so like, like I kind of hinted at before, I'm mostly an inpatient provider. Um, I would say my time is split about 80% in some form of inpatient uh, role, and about 20% of that is spent in the outpatient setting. The 20% that's in the outpatient setting is probably easier to describe. So I have two half days of clinic a week. Um, I do three EMGs or Botox injections as a part of one of those half days of clinic. And then I see four patients after that. And those could be follow-ups from the rehab unit or referrals from the community for a neuro rehab diagnosis. The other thing in that outpatient setting, our unit here at the University of Colorado sees a really wide variety of patients. I have a colleague that is very similar to me, but their 20% is in amputee and burns. And then myself and another colleague mostly focus on neuro rehab, but then we also see the heart, liver, lung transplants, the LVADs, the critically ill, the post-COVIDs, and anything that doesn't fall into that amputee and burn bucket. So it's still mostly neuro rehab follow-up type patients, but there's lots of other things that we do see, cancer rehab, for example. The 80% that's inpatient, that ends up getting divided between helping manage our actual inpatient rehab unit that cares for all these types of patients or helping run the consult service where we're helping manage the brain injury, spinal cord strokes, amputees, burns, and all of those other diagnoses when they're still in the acute care hospital, working with the neurosurgery, neurology, ortho trauma teams to help work through those issues that they face to help get them home or get them to the rehab unit for ongoing care. Okay. Sounds like you stay pretty busy. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a busy, busy week clinically. <laughs> I do have some protected time since I'm the associate program director out here to work on residency focused things, but um, for the most part, I'm, I'm hustling either in the outpatient setting or somewhere in the hospital. Uh, there's probably someone on every floor that I, I know and can get the lowdown on because we're, we're all over the place. Okay. So I kind of want to ask you about or talk a little bit more about the Colorado RSVP clinic. Sure, sure. Could you describe exactly what the Colorado RSVP clinic is? You bet. So it was, um, was co-founded with myself and one of the attendings over at Craig Hospital here in Denver. Um, I rotated with Dr. Jeff Berliner when I was a uh, resident and we both found we had a passion for working with the underserved uh, population especially the underserved rehab population. Um, and so when I graduated from residency and stuck around, we started putting together a coalition of folks to help find a way to care for them here. Um, as part of your rehab training, you're gonna find that just like, well, similar to, I wouldn't say just like, similar to 
people who manage heart transplants or certain types of procedures, there's a limited resource in the number of rehab beds that exists. And so every time you're saying yes to a given person, you're inevitably saying no to someone else. And there's lots of reasons why you end up deciding to bring someone versus a different person. And part of those things that go into that decision for all the rehab units across the country sometimes is insurance coverage and making sure you're having enough revenue to keep on the main operations. And that typically leads to uninsured patients or underserved patients not gaining as much access to care as you'd like. And so we started the RSVP clinic to kind of help support our local system of care. Uh, we really try to focus on the traditional rehab diagnoses of amputees, brain injury, which include traumatic or stroke, and spinal cord injury. Um, each patient that ends up getting brought into the RSVP clinic, uh, they're referred typically from acute care, hospital, case managers and social workers. We have ties in all the spots here out here in Denver in the Colorado region. And they send us referrals so that we try to capture taking in those patients pretty soon to after they're leaving the hospital or a rehab unit. Um, they get evaluated potentially by up to, I think it's six to eight disciplines, depending on what their needs are. And that covers the typical therapy gamut of speech therapy, occupational um, and physical therapy. Uh, we also have nurses that are involved, pharmacists, rehab physicians, social work slash case manager, and then psychological support. Sometimes that's a chaplain, sometimes that's a formal psycho uh, psychologist or a rehab psychologist or a neuropsychologist, depending on who's volunteering that day. And then we have a prosthetist uh, team and then a wheelchair vendor team. And we all kind of coalesce around what that patient's needs are with the goals of getting them up to that next functional level so that we can get them back and engaged into the community and then have the next person come in that we can help out with. It's a once a month clinic. Typically it's the, the morning of the second Sunday of the month. And uh, yeah, we've been open now for, I think three going on four years. We, we might've crossed the four year mark in April. I should have looked up the exact start date, but wow. uh, we launched it here. There's one in Texas, so we're a spinoff, not exactly the same from the, the Texas organization. And then when we launched our clinic out here, we made a startup package. So we've been able to have a startup off of what we've put together as kind of a initiation process to help get people off the ground and streamline it. Uh, so Georgia has one now that's mainly based out of the Atlanta region. Wow, it sounds like it's really had a really large impact on the community, not just in Denver, but also outside of the area too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it sounds weird to say that we kind of do the same thing that I do during the week, but it, uh, you don't have to worry about billing or certain things being in the note or you won't get compensated or playing the game of insurance approval, we've been able to fundraise enough that if a person needs a piece of equipment or a new power chair or a new type of commode that will help them be more functional, we just buy it for them and get it so that they can get on with their lives. Yeah, that's awesome. 
and it seems really neat that a lot of other people are just as invested in it as you, you guys with you've got so many teams coordinating all of this and volunteering their time and money yep we have a, a whole fleet of met, the way medical students are involved in that group is uh they act as a scribe for the most part. Sometimes they're patient navigators that call halfway through the month to check in on our patients to see how they're doing. Um, but we find using them as a scribe can be incredibly valuable because they're getting kind of they're getting practice at actual documenting what you need to do to hand off to that next team. They can see the physical exams that the residents and the attendings are doing, which lead to teachable moments after that visit. And the pace of the clinic is slow enough that we typically have time to do a fair amount of education too. Wow, sounds like a great opportunity for students. Yep, I, I don't know, it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just wanna shift again a little bit and talk about uh, social media. Very, very prevalent in today's time and age. Um, so you yourself are very active on Twitter. And social media plays a huge role in society, uh, whether good or bad. Um, yep. So I wanted to ask, just how important do you find social media in the world of physiatry or even medicine as a whole? Uh, I don't know if I'd use the word important necessarily. <laughs> I would say it's a it, it's potentially a valuable tool. So there's definitely very good physicians that never step into the world of social media at all that do amazing, great, wonderful things without even crossing that threshold. Um, the way I, the lens I kind of use to think about it is a, it's just another form of communication. So this video conferencing is a form of communication. There's sending emails, handwritten letters, catching people in the hallway, phone calls. That they're all ways to communicate with the world around you. And there are some different benefits from doing it on a social media type platform. And the way I kind of describe it is, you know, if, if you and I were just having this conversation and we weren't recording it and we weren't putting it out there, it would mostly exist between myself and you. You might talk to a colleague or a fellow medical student. I might talk with another attending or another program director in another place and say, you know what, I just met Ryan Russell and you know he's great and there's all these awesome things, but it kind of, this just exists between you and I. And that's the way most of those forms of communication are, whether that's text, email, and other ways. And what's different about social media is if I were to post a tweet and it was flagged with you in the tweet. That's one way that I can kind of communicate with you on that platform. But with what's different is everyone can see that communication and it's a lot more open. It's kind of taking it out of the box and allowing everyone to work off of it and around it. And what's really neat is if you take the, the example, let's say of a national conference, and I post a tweet about something using different flags or hashtags, you suddenly are able to find other people that are talking about the same things as yourself. So I might post a tweet about a talk I'm in and add certain tags to it. 
that might be neuro rehab or spinal cord injury or stroke or PT. And suddenly if you, another person who's also on Twitter searches for hashtag neuro rehab and physical therapy, suddenly my communication with you is discoverable. And you can imagine based on the filters that you use, suddenly you can have a really big community or a really small community. If you take like musculoskeletal medicine, if you add like sports medicine and shoulder and therapy, suddenly you're in probably the realm of you know, hundreds of people. And if you add even a little bit more into that, you're talking about maybe there's only about 20 people that are talking about this specific thing. And suddenly that's your peer group. That's people you can collaborate with on research. That's people at other institutions that you didn't even know about that were looking into the same things that you are. And now you have a community that you can build off of and collaborate with and change can kind of happen. And that's kind of why it's exciting to see some of the change and social things that have come off of Twitter and idea sharing because things can really grow fast. Um, the other example I like to use is like COVID rehab and things. When we were in the throes of the early pandemic, we opened our rehab unit to take only active COVID patients. And it was collaborating with NYU and other institutions. And suddenly we found there's, you know, five different places, three different places that are in the thick of it right now. And off of what we were posting on social media, we suddenly had a Zoom conference between myself, our therapy directors out here, and NYU's directors out there doing a best practice sharing that stemmed off of what we were talking about on Twitter, that otherwise I would have no idea it was even happening. And the other benefit, it's a lot faster. So to wait for NYU to publish something, that's months down the line. But in that scenario, I needed to be able to bounce ideas off quickly in the thick of it. How are you managing PPE? Are you doing PPE in the gym? Do you mask all the patients up or they're all COVID positive? You know, what are you doing? And that really helped a lot to work through that process. Right. So it seems like COVID-19, it was a perfect tool to use. Do you think that type of collaboration will continue that the COVID-19 pandemic has kind of made that more of a forefront and changed that? In yeah. I, think, I think people have seen the value of it. Um, I mean, there's tons of news articles out there where even there was mega WhatsApp chats between Italian physicians and physicians over here in the U.S. that were like, what are you doing for your event settings? How aggressive are you being? Are you using this med versus that med? How aggressive is your steroid program? Are you proning people? And so it's, it's another kind of form of communication to help work through all of those pieces. Um, yeah, I, when, I mean, it's just like any other tool, like a hammer is a very valuable tool, but in the, in the right hands, in the wrong hands, it can also be a very detrimental tool that can lead to unintended or sometimes even intended consequences, bodily harm, self-inflicted or otherwise. And it's just a matter of knowing that it's there and being able to be familiar with it enough that you can use it when you need it. 
right? I feel like as medical students, a lot of times we're kind of more warned about social media, especially during school, because it can lead to so many detrimental things that prevent you from getting into residency. Um, but it is a very useful tool and it's a great way to network with others and peers. So do you have any advice for medical students on how to make social media a useful tool and not sure. detrimental? Sure. Uh, I talk with a lot of the med students that rotate uh, through here um, along these lines. And I think I think there's broad strokes, like three different flavors of like a social media account. So whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's uh, TikTok, you know, take your pick, um, or even Facebook, um, there are accounts where or people who use that account as a way to gain information. So a med student could um, start an account on Twitter or Instagram and follow journals in the fields that they're interested in. You know, you could pick New England Journal of Medicine, some cardiology stuff, if that's what you're interested in. You could, you could look at um, like take PM&R, you could look at neural rehab, musculoskeletal rehab, sports medicine, amputee care, and see what's out there. And it's a way to see what a communication is in the people who are active in the field. And you don't have to retweet, you don't have to post anything. It's just a, a lens into that world. And actually, I find that's a really valuable tool. You know, take PM&R, for example, you may be an institution that's very musculoskeletal focused or very neural rehab focused and not have any idea how broad this field actually is. But if you jump on Twitter and start seeing PM&R or physiatry or rehab and you start to go down those rabbit holes, suddenly you realize there's this field is a lot bigger than you even thought it was. But that's true for any field, OB, pathology, gen surgery, oncology, suddenly you get a lens that's far reaching outside of your institution and potentially international and see what people in that domain are actually doing. The second layer of engagement is more, you see something that is a valuable piece of information and you make the leap and you like it or you retweet it or you engage with it in some way to try and encourage others around that good idea. And that's kind of the second layer. And then the third layer is generating a little bit more of your own content, um, getting an opinion piece out there or taking an article that's in a journal and posting about it to share it with other people or getting around a cause or trying to launch an RSVP clinic at your institution or whatever, suddenly, you're engaging as a, I don't know, generator of content. And you can be at all those different levels at different points. There's definitely months I'm more of a receiver of information. There's other points where I'm more promoting things I'm seeing out there. And then when there's components where I'm trying to get the word out for something, then I'm generating that content. And all of those are okay uh, and good. Uh, you just have to kind of be conscious of, you know, always be nice, always be truthful, you know, uh, there was the, there's the three things. Um, don't say anything unless you know that it's true, that it's useful and you're being kind. 
And those are good things regardless of the circumstance, but especially true online. Things can get taken out of context. Um, overt kindness will always get you further in the social media realm. Um, there's also thoughts that you need to you know, retweet and promote someone else's tweet 20 times before they potentially will even retweet one of your things. So kind of being humble and trying to promote all the people around you will help encourage them to also promote when you put something of your own out there. It's great advice. Always be nice. <laughs> and yep, don't be a jerk. And it's definitely like a tool that is kind of here to stay. So I think it's great to get information out there to students and residents of how to use that tool as opposed to letting it get you in trouble. Right. And, you know, it's your brand. Don't, don't uh, switch over your account since high school or college or undergrad. Like, make your own professional you thing. So Twitter is my professional existence. I have an Instagram and a Facebook account, but that's for like sharing, sharing photos with friends and loved ones. And really those two domains don't overcross when typically where I see these mistakes happen is when someone's got multiple Twitter accounts and you've seen famous people make this mistake, right? They have multiple Twitter accounts and then they post something from their, they thought was their private account, but it's their public facing one. And suddenly they're in a lot of hot water because it's now apparent that they have this particular view, which is polarizing. You know, you can figure out all sorts of different scenarios where that can be problematic. But if you stay in the professional lane, you're promoting other professional things, you're promoting research and idea sharing, it's really hard to argue against that not being a valuable thing in the greater community. Excellent advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Niehaus. This has been very educational and wonderful topics that are super relevant to today's world and situation. You bet. All right. Like I said, I'm Ryan Russell with the AOC PMNR Public Relations Committee, and thank you for joining us today on the uh, AOC PMNR podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. And uh, if you do want to engage with you know, chatting about things, you have questions about rehab or questions about the Colorado Denver program, you can reach out. And my Twitter handle is at N-H-A-U-S-M-D. No one can remember in my last name if the E or the I goes first. So I just took it out of the Twitter handle. <laughs> A lot easier to find. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Niehaus. All right. Been a pleasure. We'll see you later. See ya.